0: Audio number 76, another sermon by the greatest evangelist in American history, George Whitefield, entitled, The Holy Spirit Convincing the World of Sin, Righteousness, and Judgment. O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy, Habakkuk 3.2. And Martin Luther writes, The Damned are suffering so severely because they were unwilling to be damned. The question is, why is it necessary that we agree with God that we should be damned to hell? And why is it that we do not want to be damned to hell? The answer to this question is that it is in the DNA of every one of us natural man Americans, that we are born into this world with the big leaves of morality as our ticket into heaven. That is, it is in our DNA that our ticket into heaven is ingrained in us to be either love or to be kind or to apply the golden rule or to do the best we can With what we have. And thus we are born into this world with no fear of God, for our heart deceives us into believing that the fig leaves of morality will surely enable us to escape the judgment of God after we die. And thus any other option to be subscribed to us as the ticket into heaven ruffles our feathers or aggravates us or gets under our skins or maybe infuriates us, irks us, needles us or drives us up the wall. For even the slightest suggestion that our fig leaves of morality will not get us into heaven is like taking away our pacifier. We just start crying. We plug our ears we close our eyes, for we are in a state of unbelief that there could be another option to salvation other than the fig leaves of morality. But common sense tells us that the fig leaves of morality will not make us holy. And all of us, natural men and Americans, know innately that heaven is holy. In order to get into heaven, we must be holy. The fig leaves of morality can only cover over the evil proclivities of our heart. It cannot make us holy. And so George Whitfield in this sermon preaches from John 16, verse 8. And when he, the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, is come, the Holy Spirit will convince the world of sin. What kind of sin? The sin of unbelief that there is another option than the fig leaves of morality. Of righteousness, that self-righteousness will not get us into heaven, but that the righteousness of God will get us into heaven by faith. And the Holy Spirit must convince us of judgment, that Jesus has won the spiritual war and not only has he taken on hell for his elect but he fulfilled the moral law for his elect obtained by faith in the righteousness of god and now before we get to mr whitfield's message let us prepare ourselves by listening to saint augustine's personal testimony of his agonization to enter in at the straight gate in his book entitled the confessions of saint augustine this particular section of his book is quite profound. For if Christ is all might, if Christ is all understanding, if Christ is all wisdom, why would we settle for second best? And yet we do, as St. Augustine eloquently portrays this. Book 2, paragraph 13. For thus we see pride wearing the mask of high-spiritedness, although only thou, O God, art high above all. Ambition seeks honor and glory, whereas only thou shouldst be honored above all, O God, and glorified forever. The powerful man seeks to be feared because of his cruelty, but who ought really to be feared, but God only. What can be forced away or withdrawn out of his power? When or where or whither or by whom? The enticements of wanton claim the name of love, and yet nothing is more enticing than thy love, O God. Nor is anything loved more healthfully Than thy truth, O God, bright and beautiful above all. Curiosity prompts a desire for knowledge. Whereas it is only thou who knowest all things supremely, O God. Indeed, ignorance and foolishness themselves go masked under the names of simplicity and innocence. Yet there is no being that has true simplicity like thine, and none is innocent as thou art, O God. Thus it is that by a sinner's own deeds he is himself harmed. Human sloth pretends to long for rest, but what sure rest is there save in the Lord? Luxury would fain be called plenty and abundance. Thou art the fullness and unfailing abundance of unfading joy, O oh God. Prodigality presents a shadow of liberality, but thou art the most lavish giver of all good things, O oh God. Covetousness desires to possess much, but thou art already the possessor of all things, O God. Envy contends that its aim is for excellence, but what is so excellent as thou, O God? Anger seeks revenge, but who avenges more justly than thou, O God? Fear recoils at the unfamiliar and the sudden changes which threaten things beloved and is wary for its own security. But what can happen that is unfamiliar or sudden to thee, O God? Or who can deprive thee of what thou lovest? Where really is there unshaken security save with thee? O oh God. Grief languishes for things lost in which desire had taken delight, because it wills to have nothing taken from it, just as nothing can be taken from thee, O oh God. Paragraph 14. Thus the soul commits fornication when she is turned from thee, and seeks apart from thee what she cannot find pure and untainted until she returns to thee, O God. All things thus imitate thee, O God. But pervertedly, when they separate themselves far from thee and raise themselves up against thee, O God. But even in this act of perverse imitation, they acknowledge thee to be the creator of all nature and recognize that there is no place whither they can all together separate themselves from Thee, O God. What was it then that I loved in that theft? And wherein was I imitating my Lord even in a corrupted and perverted way? Did I wish if only by gesture, to rebel against thy law, even though I had no power to do so, actually, so that even as a captive, I might produce a sort of counterfeit liberty by doing with impunity deeds that were forbidden in a deluded sense of omnipotence. Behold, the servant of thine, fleeing from his Lord and following a shadow, a rottenness, oh, monsterness of life and an abyss of death. Could I find pleasure only in what was unlawful and only because it was unlawful? Chapter 7, paragraph 15. What shall I render unto thee, O Lord? For the fact that while my memory recalls these things, my soul no longer fears them. I will love thee, O Lord, and thank thee, and confess to thy name, because thou hast put away from me such wicked and evil deeds. To thy grace I attribute it, and to thy mercy." That thou hast melted away my sin as if it were ice. To thy grace also I attribute whatsoever of evil I did not commit. For what might I not have done? Loving sin as I did, just for the sake of sinning. Yea, all the sins that I now confess to have been forgiven me both those which I committed willfully and those which by thy providence I did not commit. What man is there who when reflecting upon his own infirmity dares to ascribe his chastity and innocence to his own powers so that he should love thee less as if he were in less need of thy mercy in which thou forgivest the sins of those that return to thee. As for that man who, when called by thee, obeyed thy voice and shunned those things which he here reads of me as I recall and confess them of myself. Let him not despise me, for I who was sick have been healed by the same physician by whose aid it was that he did not fall sick, or rather was less sick than I. And for this let him love thee just as much. Indeed, all the more, since he sees me restored from such a great weakness of sin by the self-same Savior, by whom he sees himself preserved from such a weakness. Chapter 8, paragraph 16. What profit did I, a wretched one, receive from those things which, when I remember them now, cause me shame? Above all, from that theft, which I loved only for theft's sake. And as the theft itself was nothing, I was all the more wretched in that I loved it so. Yet by myself alone, I would not have done it. I still recall how I felt about this then. I could not have done it alone. I loved it because of the companionship of my accomplices with whom I did it. I did not therefore love the theft alone, yet indeed it was only the theft that I loved, for the companionship was nothing. What is this paradox? Who is it that can explain it to me but God who illumines my heart and searches out the dark corners thereof? What is it that has prompted my mind to inquire about it, to discuss and reflect upon all this. For had I at that time loved the pears that I sold and wished to enjoy them, I might have done so alone if I could have been satisfied with the mere act of theft by which my pleasure was served. Nor did I need to have that itching of my own passions inflamed by the encouragement of my accomplices. But since the pleasure I got was not from the pears, it was in the crime itself, enhanced by the companionship of my fellow sinners. Now, as we reflect on these deep and powerful words of St. Augustine, let us commence with the reading of George Whitfield's sermon entitled, The Holy Spirit Convincing the World of Sin, Righteousness, and judgment. John sixteen eight, And when he, that is the Holy Spirit, is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness. And we've talked many times about righteousness. It's, it's talking about the righteousness of God. And of judgment. These words contain part of a gracious promise which the blessed jesus was pleased to make to his weeping and sorrowful disciples the time was now drawing near in which the son of man was first to be lifted up on the cross and afterwards to heaven kind wondrous kind had this merciful high priest been to his disciples during the time of his tabernacling amongst them. He had compassion on their infirmities, answered for them when assaulted by their enemies, and set them right when out of the way, either in principle or practice. He neither called nor used them as servants, but as friends. And he revealed his secrets to them from time to time. He opened their understandings that they might understand the scriptures, explained to them the hidden mysteries of the kingdom of God when he spoke to others in parables. Nay, he became the servant of them all and even condescended to wash their feet. The thoughts of parting with so dear and loving a master as this, especially for a long season, must needs affect them much. When on a certain occasion he intended to be absent from them only for a night, we are told he was obliged to constrain them to leave him. No wonder then that when he now informed them he must entirely go away. And that the Pharisees in his absence should put them out of their synagogues and excommunicate them. Yea, that the time should come that whosoever killed them would think they did God a service. A prophecy, one would imagine, in an especial manner designed for the suffering ministers of this generation. No wonder I say, considering all this, that we are told, verse six, sorrow had filled their hearts because I have said these things unto you. Sorrow hath filled your hearts. The expression is very emphatical. Their hearts were so full of concern that they were ready to burst. In order, therefore, to reconcile them to this mournful dispensation, our dear and compassionate Redeemer, shows them the necessity he lay under to leave them. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. As though he had said, think not, my dear disciples, that I leave you out of anger. No, it is for your sakes, for your profit, that I go away. For if I go not away, if I die not upon the cross for your sins and rise not again for your justification and ascend into heaven to make intercession and plead my merits before my Father's throne, the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, will not cannot come unto you but if I depart I will send him unto you and that they might know what he was to do when he is come he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment the person referred to in the words of the text is plainly the comforter the Holy Ghost, and the promise was first made to our Lord's apostles. But though it was primarily made to them, and was literally and remarkably fulfilled at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost came down as a mighty rushing wind, and also when three thousand were pricked to the heart by Peter's preaching. Yet as the apostles were the representatives of the whole body of believers, we must infer that this promise must be looked upon as spoken to us and to our children and to as many as the Lord our God shall call. My design from these words is to show the manner in which the Holy Ghost generally works upon the hearts of those who through grace are made vessels of mercy and translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. I say generally, for as God is a sovereign agent, his sacred spirit bloweth not only on whom, but when and how it listeth. Therefore, far be it from me to confine the Almighty to one way of acting or say that all undergo an equal degree of conviction. No, there is a holy variety in God's methods of calling home his elect. But this we may affirm assuredly, that wherever there is a work of true conviction and conversion wrought upon a sinner's heart the holy ghost whether by a greater or lesser degree of inward soul trouble does that which our lord jesus told the disciples in the words of the text that he should do when he came if any of you ridicule inward religion or think there is no such thing as feeling or receiving the Holy Ghost, I fear my preaching will be quite foolishness to you and that you will understand me no more than if I spoke to you in an unknown tongue. But as the promise in the text is made to the world, and as I know it will be fulfilling till time shall be no more, I shall proceed to explain the general way whereby the Holy Ghost works upon every converted sinner's heart. And I hope that the Lord, even whilst I am speaking, will be pleased to fulfill it in many of your hearts. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The word which we translate, reprove ought to be rendered convince and in the original it implies a conviction by way of argumentation and coming with a power upon the mind equal to a demonstration a great many scoffers of these last days notice george whitfield says that he's in the last days because the last days began at the cross a great many scoffers of these last days will ask such as they term pretenders to the Spirit, how they feel the Spirit and how they know the Spirit. They might as well ask how they know and how they feel the sun when it shines upon the body. For with equal power and demonstration does the Spirit of God work upon and convince the soul. And first, it convinces of sin, and generally of some enormous sin, the worst perhaps the convicted person ever was guilt of. Thus, when our Lord was conversing with the woman of Samaria, he convinced her first of her adultery, Woman, go call thy husband. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In this saideth thou truly. With this there went such a powerful conviction of all her other actual sins that soon after she left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, come and see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Thus our Lord also dealt with the persecutor's soul. He convinced him first of the horrid sin of persecution. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Such a sense of all his other sins, probably at the same time revived in his mind that immediately he died that is, died to all his false confidences and was thrown into such an agony of soul that he continued three days and neither did eat nor drink. This is the method of the Spirit of God generally takes in dealing with sinners. He first convinces them of some heinous actual sin, and at the same time brings all their other sins into remembrance, and as it were, sets them in battle array before them. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. And was it ever thus with you, my dear hearers? For I must question you as I go along, because I intend by the divine help to preach not only to your heads, but your hearts. Did the Spirit of God ever bring all your sins thus to remembrance and make you cry out to God? Thou writest bitter things against me. Did your actual sins ever appear before you as though drawn in a map? If not, you have great reason, unless you were sanctified from the womb, to suspect that you are not convicted, much more not converted, and that the promise of the text was never yet fulfilled in your hearts. Farther, when the Comforter comes into a sinner's heart, though it generally convinces the sinner of his actual sin first yet it leads him to see and bewail his original sin the fountain from which all these polluted streams do flow though everything in the earth air and water everything both without and within concur to prove the truth of the assertion in the scripture in adam we all have died yet most are so hardened through the deceitfulness of sin that notwithstanding they may give an assent to the truth of the proposition in their heads yet they never felt it really in their hearts nay some in words professedly deny it, though their works too, Too plainly prove them to be degenerate sons of a degenerate father. But when the Comforter, the Spirit of God, arrests a sinner and convinces him of sin, all carnal reasoning against original corruption, Every proud and high imagination which exalted itself against the doctrine is immediately thrown down. And he is made to cry out, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He now finds that concupiscence, that is the evil proclivities of our heart. He now finds that concupiscence is sin. And does not so much bewail his actual sins as the inward perverseness of his heart, which he now finds not only to be an enemy to, but also direct enmity against God. And did the Comforter, my dear friends, ever come with such a convincing power as this unto your hearts? Were you ever made to see and feel that in your flesh dwelleth no good thing, that you are conceived and born in sin, that you are by nature children of wrath, that God would be just if he damned you, though you never committed an actual sin in your lives? so often as you have been at church and sacrament, did you ever feelingly confess that there was no health in you, that the remembrance of your original and actual sins was grievous unto you, and the burden of them intolerable? If not, you have been only offering to God vain, ablations. You never yet prayed in your lives. The comforter never yet came effectually into your souls. Consequently, you are not in the faith properly so-called. No, you are at present in a state of death and damnation. Again, the comforter, when he comes effectually to work upon a sinner, not only convinces him of the sin of his nature and the sin of his life, but also of the sin of his duties. We all naturally are legalists, thinking to be justified by the works of the law. When somewhat awakened, By the terrors of the Lord, we immediately, like the Pharisees of old, go about to establish our own righteousness and think we shall find acceptance with God if we seek it with tears. Finding ourselves damned by nature and our actual sins, we then think to recommend ourselves to God by our duties and hope by our doings of one kind or another, to inherit eternal life. But whenever the Comforter comes into the heart, it convinces the soul of these false rests and makes the sinner so see that all his righteousness, that is his self-righteousness, are but filthy rags. And that for the most pompous services He deserves no better a doom than that of the unprofitable servant to be thrown into outer darkness where is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And was this degree of conviction ever wrought in any of your souls? Did the Comforter ever come into your hearts so as to make you sick of your duties as well as your sins? Were you ever with the great apostle of the Gentiles made to abhor your own righteousness, which is by the law, and acknowledge that you deserve to be damned, though you should give all your goods to feed the poor? Were you made to feel that your very repentance needed to be repented of, and that everything in yourselves is but dung, and dross and that all the arguments you can fetch for mercy must be out of the heart and pure unmerited love of God were you ever made to lie at the feet of sovereign grace and to say Lord if thou wilt thou mayest save me if not Thou mayest justly damn me. I have nothing to plead. I can in no wise justify myself in thy sight. My best performances I see will condemn me. And all I have to depend upon is this thy free grace. What say you? Was this ever or is this now the the habitual language of your hearts. You have been frequently at the temple, but did you ever approach it in the temper of the poor publican? And after you have done all, acknowledge that you have done nothing. And upon a feeling experimental sense of your own unworthiness and sinfulness every way might upon your breasts and say god be merciful to us sinners if you never were thus minded the comforter never yet effectually came into your souls you are out of christ and if god should require your souls in that condition he would be no better to you than a consuming fire But there is a fourth sin of which the comforter, when he comes, convinces the soul and which alone it is very remarkable. Our Lord mentions as though it was the only sin worth mentioning. For indeed, it is the root of all other sins whatsoever. It is the reigning as well as the damning sin of the world. And what now do you imagine that sin may be? It is that cursed sin, that root of all other evils. I mean the sin of unbelief says our Lord, verse 9, of sin, because they believe not on me. But does the Christian world or any of you that hear me this day want the Holy Ghost to convince you of unbelief? Are there any infidels here? Yes, yes. Oh, that I had not too great reason to think so. I fear most are such, not indeed such infidels as professedly deny the Lord that bought us. Though I fear too many, even of such monsters, are in every country. But I mean such unbelievers that have no more faith than the devils themselves. Perhaps you may think you believe because you repeat the creed or subscribe to a confession of faith because you go to church or meeting, receive the sacrament, and are taken into full communion. These are blessed privileges. But all this may be done without our being true believers. And I know not how to detect your false hypocritical faith better than putting to you this question. How long have you believed? Would not most of you say, as long as we can remember, we never did disbelieve? Then this is a certain sign that you have no true faith at all. No, not so much as a grain of mustard seed. For if you believe now, unless you were sanctified from your infancy, which is the case of some, you must know that there was a time in which you did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, if ever you received it, convinced you of this truth. Eternal truth has declared when he is come, He will convince the world of sin because they believe not on me. None of us believe by nature. But after the Holy Ghost has convinced us of the sin of our natures and the sin of our lives and duties in order to convince us of our utter inability to save ourselves and that we must be beholden to God as for everything else, so for faith, without which it is impossible to please or be saved by Christ. He convinces us also that we have no faith. Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Is the grand question which the Holy Ghost now puts to the soul at the same time he works with such power and demonstration that the soul sees and is obliged to confess that it has no faith this is a little thing thought of by most who call themselves believers they dream they are christians because they live in a christian country if they were born turks they would believe on muhammad For what is that which men commonly call faith but an outward consent to the established religion? But do not you thus deceive your own selves. True faith is quite another thing. Ask yourselves, therefore, whether or not the Holy Ghost ever powerfully convinced you of the sin of unbelief you are perhaps so devout you may imagine as to get a catalog of sins which you look over and confess in a formal manner as often as you go to the holy sacrament but among all your sins did you ever once confess and bewail that damning sin of unbelief Were you ever made to cry out, Lord, give me faith? Lord, give me to believe on thee. Oh, that I had faith. Oh, that I could believe if you never were thus distressed. At least if you never saw and felt that you had no faith. It is a certain sign that the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, never came into and worked savingly upon your souls. But is it not odd that the Holy Ghost should be called a comforter when it is plain by the experience of all God's children that this work of conviction is usually attended with sore inward conflicts and a great deal of soul trouble? I answer. The Holy Ghost may well be termed a comforter, even in this work, because it is the only way to and ends in true solid comfort. Blessed are they that are thus convicted by Him, for they shall be comforted. Nay, Not only so, but there is present comfort. Even in the midst of these convictions, the soul secretly rejoices in the sight of its own misery. Blesses God for bringing it out of darkness into light and looks forward with a comfortable prospect of future deliverances, knowing that though sorrow may endure for a night, joy will come in the morning. Thus it is that the Holy Ghost convinces the soul of sin. And if so, how wretchedly are they mistaken that blend the light of the Spirit with the light of conscience as all such do who say that Christ lighteth every man that cometh into the world and that light, if improved, will bring us to Jesus Christ. If such doctrine be true, the promise in the text was needless. Our Lord's apostles had already that light. The world hereafter, to be convinced, had that light. And if that was sufficient to bring them to Christ, why was it expedient that Christ should go away to heaven to send down the Holy Ghost to do this For them. Alas, all have not this Spirit. It is the special gift of God. And without this special gift, we can never come to Christ. The light of conscience will accuse or convince us of any common sin, but the light of natural conscience never did, never will, and never can convince us of unbelief belief. If it could, how comes it to pass that not one of the heathens, who improved the light of nature in such an eminent degree, was ever convinced of unbelief? No, natural conscience cannot affect this. It is the peculiar property of the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. When he is come, he will reprove or convince the world of sin of righteousness and judgment. We have heard how he convinces us of sin. We come not to show, secondly, what is the righteousness of which the comforter convinces the world. By the word righteousness, in some places of scripture, we are to understand that common justice which we ought to practice between man and men. And when Paul is said to reason of temperance and righteousness before a trembling Felix. But here, as in a multitude of other places in holy writ, we are to understand by the word righteousness, the active and passive obedience of our dear Lord Jesus. Even that perfect, personal, all-substance Efficient righteousness, which he has wrought out for that world which the Spirit is to convince of righteousness, says our Lord, because I go to the Father and ye see me no more. This is one argument that the Holy Spirit makes use of to prove Christ's righteousness because he is gone to the Father and we see him no more. For had he not wrought out a sufficient righteousness, the Father would have sent him back as not having done what he undertook. And we should have seen him again. Oh, the righteousness of Christ. It so comforts my soul that I must be excused if I mention it in almost all my discourses. I would not, if I could help it, have one sermon without it. Whatever infidels may object or Arminians, that is the fast food free will, Christians, sophistically argue against an imputed righteousness, yet whoever knows themselves and God must acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness and perfect justification in the sight of God to everyone that believeth and that we are to be made the righteousness of God in him in Christ this and this only a poor sinner can lay hold of as a sure anchor of his hope whatever other scheme of salvation men may lay I acknowledge I can see no other foundation whereon to build my hopes of salvation, but on the rock of Christ's personal righteousness imputed to my soul. Many, I believe, have a rational conviction of and agree with me in this. But rational convictions, if rested in, avail but little. It must be a spiritual, experimental conviction of truth which is saving. And therefore, our Lord says when the Holy Ghost comes in the day of his power, it convinces of this righteousness, of the reality, completeness, and sufficiency of it to save a poor sinner. We have seen how the Holy Ghost convinces the sinner of the sin of his nature, the sin of his life, the sin of his duties, and of the sin of unbelief. And what then must the poor creature do? He must, he must inevitably despair if there be no hope but in himself. When therefore the Spirit has hunted the sinner out of all his false rests and hiding places, taken off the pitiful fig leaves of his own works and driven him out of the trees of the garden, his outward reformations, and place him naked before the bar of a sovereign, holy, just and sin-avenging God, then, then it is when the soul having the sentence of death with in itself because of unbelief has a sweet display of Christ's righteousness made to it by the Holy Spirit of God. Here it is, that he begins more immediately to act in the quality of a comforter and convinces the soul so powerfully of the reality and all sufficiency of Christ's righteousness that the soul is immediately set a-hungering and thirsting after it. Now the sinner begins to see that though he has destroyed himself, yet in Christ is his help. And though he has no righteousness of his own to recommend him, There is a fullness of grace, a fullness of truth, a fullness of righteousness in the dear Lord Jesus, which, if once imputed to him, will make him happy forever and ever. None can tell but those happy souls who have experienced it with what demonstration of the spirit this conviction comes and how amiable, as well as all-sufficient, does the blessed Jesus now appear? With what new eyes does the soul now see the Lord, its righteousness? Brethren, it is unutterable. If you were never thus convinced of Christ's righteousness in your own souls, though you may believe it doctrinally, it will avail you nothing. If the comforter never came savingly into your souls, then you are comfortless indeed. But what will this righteousness avail if the soul have it not in possession? Thirdly, the next thing, therefore, the comforter, when he comes, convinces the soul of his judgment. By the word judgment, I understand that well-grounded peace, that settled judgment, which the soul forms of itself when it is enabled by the Spirit of God to lay hold on Christ's righteousness, which I believe it always does when convinced in the matter before mentioned. Of judgment, says our Lord, because the prince of this world is judged, the soul being able to lay hold on christ's perfect righteousness by a lively faith has a conviction wrought in it by the holy spirit that the prince of this world is judged the soul being now justified by faith has peace with god through our lord jesus christ and can triumphantly say it is christ that justifies me Who is he that condemns me? The strong man armed is now cast out. My soul is in a true peace. The prince of this world will come and accuse, but he has now no share in me. The blessed spirit which I have received and whereby I am enabled to apply Christ's righteousness to my poor soul powerfully convinces me of this. Why should I fear or of what shall I be afraid since God's spirit witnesses with my spirit that I am a child of God. The Lord is ascended upon high. He has led captivity captive. He has received the Holy Ghost, the comforter, that best of gifts for men. And that comforter is come into my heart. He is faithful that hath promise. I, even I, am powerfully, rationally, spiritually convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. By this I know the prince of this world is judged. Thus I say, may we suppose that soul to triumph in which the promise of the text is happily fulfilled. Though at the beginning of this discourse I said most had never experienced any of this, and that therefore this preaching must be foolishness to such. Yet I doubt not, but there are some few happy souls who through grace have been able to follow me step by step, and notwithstanding the Holy Ghost might not directly work in the same order as I have described." and perhaps they cannot exactly say the time when, yet they have a well-grounded confidence that the work is done and that they have really been convinced of sin, righteousness, and judgment in some way or some time or another. And now what shall I say to you? Oh, thank God, thank the Lord Jesus, thank the ever-blessed Trinity, for this unspeakable gift. For you would never have been thus highly favored had not he who first spoke darkness into light loved you with an everlasting love and enlightened you by his Holy Spirit. And that too, not on account of any good thing foreseen in you, but for his own name's sake. Be humble, therefore, O believers, Be humble, look to the rock from whence you have been hewn. Extol free grace, admire electing love, which alone has made you to differ from the rest of your brethren. As God brought you into light, walk as becometh children of light. Provoke not the Holy Spirit to depart from you. For though he hath sealed you to the day of redemption, and you know that the prince of this world is judged, yet if you backslide, grow lukewarm, or forget your first love, the Lord will visit your offenses with the rod of affliction and your sin with spiritual scourges. Be not, therefore, high-minded, but fear rejoice let it be with trembling as the elect of god put on not only humbleness of mind but bowels of compassion and pray oh pray for your unconverted brethren help me help me now o oh children of god and hold up my hands as aaron and her once held up the hands of Moses. Pray whilst I am preaching that the Lord may enable me to say, this day is the promise in the text fulfilled in some poor sinner's heart. Cry mightily to God and with the cords of holy violence, pull down blessings on your neighbor's heads. Christ yet lives and reigns in heaven, the residue of the spirit is yet in his hand and a plentiful effusion of it is promises in the latter days of the church and oh that the holy ghost the blessed comforter would now come down and convince those that are Christless amongst you of sin of righteousness and of judgment oh that you were once made willing to be convinced but Perhaps you had rather be filled with wine than with the Spirit and are daily chasing that Holy Ghost from your souls. What shall I say for you to God? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What shall I say from God to you? Why, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Therefore, I beseech you, as in Christ said, be ye reconciled to God. Do not go away contradicting and blaspheming. I know Satan would have you begun. Many of you may be uneasy and are ready to cry out, what a weariness is this, but I will not let you go. I have wrestled with God for my hearers in private, and I must wrestle with you here in public. Though of myself I can do nothing, and you can do no more by your own power. Come to and believe on Christ than Lazarus could come forth from the grave. Yet who knows, but God may beget some of you again To a lively hope by the foolishness of preaching, and that you may be some of that world which the comforter is to convince of sin or righteousness and of judgment. Poor Christless souls, do you know what a condition you are in? Why you are lying in the wicked one, the devil. He rules in you. He walks and dwells in you, unless you dwell in Christ and the Comforter is come into your hearts. And will you contentedly lie in that wicked one, that devil? What wages will he give you? Eternal death. Oh, that you would come to Christ. The free gift of God through him is eternal life. He will accept you even now if you will believe in him. The comforter may yet come into your hearts, even yours. All that are now his living temples were once lying in the wicked one as well as you. This blessed gift this Holy Ghost, this blessed Jesus received even for the rebellious. I see many of you affected. But are your passions only a little wrought upon? Or are your souls really touched with a lively sense of the heinousness of your sins, your want of faith, and the preciousness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ? If so, I hope the Lord has been gracious and that the Comforter is coming into your hearts. Do not stifle these convictions. Do not go away and straightway forget what manner of doctrine you have heard and thereby show that these are only common workings of a few transient convictions floating upon the surface of your heart. Beg of God, That you may be sincere, for he alone can make you so. And that you may indeed desire the promise of the text to be fulfilled in your souls. Who knows, but the Lord may be gracious. Remember, you have no plea but sovereign mercy. But for your encouragement also. Remember, it is the world such as you are to whom the Comforter is come, whom he is to convince. Wait, therefore, at wisdom's gates. The bare probability of having a door of mercy open is enough to keep you striving. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, the chief of them. You know not, but he came to save you. Do not go and quarrel with God's decrees and say, if I am a reprobate, I shall be damned. And if I am elected, I shall be saved. And therefore, I will do nothing. What have you to do with God's decrees? Secret things belong to him. It is your business to give all diligence to make your calling an election sure. If there are but few who find the way that leads to life, do you strive to be some of them? You know not, but you may be in the number of those few, and that your striving may be the means which God intends to bless, to give you an entrance in. If you do not act thus, you are not sincere. And if you do, who knows? But you may find mercy. For though, after you have done all that you can, God may justly cut you off. Yet never was a single person damned who did all that he could. Though therefore your hands are withered, stretch them out, though you are impotent, sick and lame, come, lie at the pool. Who knows, but by and by the Lord Jesus may have compassion on you and send the Comforter to convince you of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. He is a God of full compassion and long-suffering. Otherwise, you and I had been long since lifted up our eyes in torments but still he is patient with us oh christless sinners you are still alive and who knows but god intends to bring you to repentance could my prayers or tears affect it you should have volleys of the one and floods of the other my heart is touched with a sense of your condition. May our merciful high priest now send down the comforter and make you sensible of it also. Oh, the love of Christ. It constrains me yet to beseech you to come to him. What do you reject if you reject Christ, the Lord of glory? Sinners, give the dear Redeemer a lodging in your souls. Do not be beshemites. Give Christ your hearts, your whole hearts. Indeed, he is worthy. He made you and not yourselves. You are not your own. Give Christ then your bodies and souls, which are his. Is it not enough to melt you down to think that the high and lofty one who inhabiteth eternity should condescend to invite you by his ministers? How soon can he frown you to hell? And how know you, but he may, this very instance, if you do not hear his voice. Did any yet harden their hearts against Christ and prosper? Come then, do not send me sorrowful away. Do not let me have reason to cry out, O oh, my leanness my leanness. Do not let me go weeping into my closet and say, Lord, they will not believe my report. Lord, I have called them and they will not answer. I am unto them as a very pleasant song and as one that plays upon a pleasant instrument. But their hearts are running after the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Would you be willing that I should give such an account of you or make such a prayer before God? And yet I must not only do so here, but appear in judgment against you hereafter, unless you will come to Christ. Once more, therefore, I entreat you to come. What objections have you to make? Behold, I stand here in the name of God to answer all that you can offer. But I know no one can come unless the Father draw him. I will therefore address one to my God and intercede with him to send the Comforter into your hearts. O blessed Jesus, who art a God whose compassions fail not and in whom all the promises are yea and amen. Thou that sitteth between the cherubims, show thyself amongst us. Let us now see thy outgoings. Oh, let us now taste that thou art gracious and reveal thy almighty arm. Get thyself the victory in these poor sinners' hearts. Let not the word spoken prove like water spilt upon the ground. Send down, send down, oh great high priest, the Holy Spirit to convince the world of sin, of righteousness. And of judgment. So will we give thanks and praise to Thee, O Father, Thee, O Son, and Thee, O Blessed Spirit, to whom as three persons but one God be ascribed by angels and archangels, by cherubims and seraphims, and all the heavenly hosts, all possible power, might, majesty, and dominion, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. And amen. Like I have said many times, you're just not going to hear a message any more doctrinal, accurate, balanced with the plea to come to Christ with the inability to come to Christ. We must come like the leper came to Christ. For we are spiritual lepers, and we must come kneeling down before Christ and say if thou wilt thou canst make me clean implying also if thou wilt not thou also can willingly damn me to hell let us in this message with the encounter between Jesus and the leper mark 1 verse 40. And there came a leper to Jesus, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying to him, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean, verse 41. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. Now, that is exactly what happens when we become a new creation. Jesus reaches forth his hand and touches us and makes us clean. And how does he make us clean? By making us a new creation and imputing to us the righteousness of God, making us holy before his Father in heaven making us innocent in his father's courtroom, for Jesus fulfilled the moral law for us. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched the leper, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. Verse 42. And as soon as he... That is, Jesus had spoken immediately. The leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. Again, that is exactly what happens when we become a new creation and we have no fingerprints on our salvation. This leper could not make himself clean, no more than we with spiritual leprosy can make ourselves clean verse 43 and he straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away verse 44 and saith unto him see thou say nothing to any man but go thy way show thyself to the priests and offer for thy cleansing those things which moses commanded for a testimony unto them verse 45 But he went out, that is, the leper went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. Let us read that first part again. Verse 45, but the leper went out and began to publish it much And to blaze abroad the matter. That is exactly what happens when we have a bondage of the will conversion versus the anemic conversion of a fast food free will Christian. We will go abroad and publish it and blaze it. For we know just as this leper knew, we have no fingerprints upon our cleansing, and we know innately we have been translated from darkness into spiritual light, into his spiritual kingdom. May we, O Lord, as Natural Men Americans experience this. May the Lord bless thee and keep thee. In the name of Jesus, amen.